0: Gary Burns, missing from Turkey. Edward Cook and Kevin Ainley, missing from Spain. These are the stories of three men from Liverpool and surrounds who are missing abroad. Their families want and deserve answers. Do you have them? Oh, guys, I forgot to add in the housekeeping of this episode, um, just quickly, if I do a bonus episode, that will just go up any time in the week. Hey guys, welcome back to episode 111 of Unknown Passage, a podcast that tells the stories of those who have gone missing or have been murdered abroad. And this is a special one that I went to pretty big lengths to get these names for you. But first, from next week, I have episodes coming out on Fridays. I finally decided to actually set a date for the podcast to come out each week. Um, It's going to be Friday nights, my time, it will go live. So that's usually Friday mornings, um or Thursday nights, wherever you are in the world. um I've basically decided for many reasons to schedule my life because lockdowns have made it very kind of difficult to have any kind of routine. And on top of that, I've been freelance for a number of years for my job. And that means very little routine as well, no matter how much I try. And I've really just decided recently to try to scale back my time online. I am the type of person who feels bad if I don't reply to someone straight away, but I have to do it for my health and my sleep routine um, and overall every facet of my life. When you're freelance, it feels like your clients or people who want your work just think that you're there and available 24-7 for them. And I've had probably six years of people emailing me at midnight asking me to do something. Um, Friends as well seem to think that you're available, like for whatever reason, I've had friends for years ask me to do things for them during the day because I'm freelance and I know a lot of freelancers who get that stress as well. And my Graves' disease kind of fight, as I'm calling it, because every day I do feel like I'm fighting. Um, to stand upright <laughs> um, or to feel well until I get my thyroid removed very soon um, has kind of made me reevaluate where I'm spending my time. I'm not really where I want to be in my life. I'm not there career-wise, um, mostly because of lockdowns, but for other reasons and my health as well. Um, and I'm not there life-wise. And I feel like I'm spending a lot of time looking at my screen time. Um, it's really just out of control. <laughs> um, so, my life is online 24-7 and it's starting to cause me quite a lot of stress. Like I've tried to outline what causes me stress and what doesn't. The podcast doesn't, um, but social media tends to in terms of the social media I manage for clients, the social media for my own business um, and, you know, social media for the podcast now. So finally, I've decided just to schedule a few things in my life and I don't really need anyone's permission to do that. I need to do that um, for me because I. I don't want to spend my life online anymore. Um, I don't consider the podcast online, um, but I consider every other aspect like adding, you know, going on Patreon um, and replying to emails. I'm getting more and more listeners, so there's a lot of emails to reply to. Um, It's just like, you know, a lot for me at the moment. Um, So if you don't hear back from me, I will get back to you, but I really just need to set times for social media for my clients, um, for other work for my clients, writing for my clients, making money for myself, because things are very bad here in Melbourne, um, spending time as with my family and friends, which hasn't been prioritised. And yeah, I'm going to dedicate at least two days a week to not being online. I'm going to try to be more present um, in my life that doesn't require screens. Not only is my grave's eye disease affecting my screen, the screens are affecting my grave's eye disease quite a lot, um, and it's kind of going down a hill. I spoke to my surgeon about my, I'm on the list to have my thyroid removed um, because my Graves' disease is very out of control and I'm having difficulty just doing basic things in my life. And I kind of talked to her a lot about my stresses and things like that. So when I get my thyroid removed, I there won't be a podcast for about a month, I'm sorry, but um, there are nerves in your thyroid um, alongside them um, that are usually, she said, when you're brushing up against them, usually have difficulty talking for a month. And she says, can the podcast for a month and can too much talking. Um, My voice will come back, but she says, you don't want to add extra stress to it. So yeah, I'm just the kind of person who feels that I need to reply immediately because I've always done that in my life um, with people. And at my age now, I just realized I'm not getting any younger and I don't want to look back and be like, oh, if I'm not emailing or I'm not doing this, I'm scrolling this shitty news app like Daily Mail, or I'm playing some stupid fucking, you know, cooking game on my phone. Um, I yeah, I just I just wanted to say all that. So I'm not dead if I don't reply. Please don't stress out because that will stress me out more. I was listening to a podcast recently that talked a lot about the downside of technology and that is being constantly available to people. If I don't reply to people now. Um, my parents, my friends, they immediately write to me and think that I'm dead and want to call the police. And that is very stressful for me because I'm not. Um, that's happened recently with my parents just because I've been asleep. <laughs> so I'm fine. And um, yeah, we'll get back to you when I can. There's the Patreon. You can join that. I always put interesting posts and things like that there. And there's also the Telegram. But you don't need me there because you can talk amongst yourselves as our... Um, teachers used to, (laughs) used to say when they'd leave the room. I've also given up smoking for the most part. That has been, um, actually quite easy for me considering how sick I've felt. I just haven't wanted to smoke. Even just getting the momentum to record an episode now is getting harder for me and my massive goitre in my neck is like pressing against my, it's just pressing against like my, my neck and my ability to talk. Um, And yeah, I just woke up yesterday and I just wanted to overhaul my life um, and evolve my brain as this book that I'm listening to on Audible is called. Um, It's about, it's by Joe Dispenza, talks about how you can actually change your brain through your thoughts. And a lot of my thoughts, like many people are based around what people are doing and what people are saying. Um, And as you kind of edge closer to 40, which is really weird to say, because I remember my fifth birthday. Um, I just, yeah, I just want to not be that person. Um, so yeah, and I think the podcast will be better for it because I do find that my research and stuff, if I've spent a day, um, on screens, replying to people, um, at the moment, it's like using a lot of energy and that sounds like I'm pussying out, but I've never felt this sick in my life. And I don't think people realize how bad it is in Melbourne. Um, the restrictions, the rules, I have no support, and I have to prioritize me because there's no one to help me. There's no one to take me to my hospital appointments. Um, there's no one to bring me food if I, you know, am unwell on one particular day. Um, so I yeah, I just need to do that. Um, so this week's episode, as I said, from Friday next week, they will be out on Fridays. Um, yeah, so probably Friday night my time, I will set it live. And then, yeah. So I think I have to do that because most of the podcasts I listen to are like Monday and Wednesday as they come out. And um, I kind of look forward to that in a podcast. I know when it's coming out. Um, so yeah. So this is a Patreon location request that's a little bit different. And this is for my patron Jay. I think he came on board three months ago after he found me. don't know how he found me, but he's really interested in Australia. He's from Liverpool um, and he has a fascination with Australia and he's also proud of where he's from. Um, and he loves podcasts and he loves podcasts that prioritize people who don't get a lot of attention, which is something that is really central to this podcast. I feel like I cover a lot of stories that no one's heard before and dig really deep to find them. He Jay really feels, well, he said his name's Jason, but he said Jason makes him sound like a serial killer. He feels that they deserve That attention and so do I. So when you become a patron, you get to choose a location for an upcoming episode. And I've got about 11 coming up after this. There's quite a lot because when patrons join really quickly, they have to be added onto the list. So first he asked for a particular place, which I'm not going to say, a particular region of the world. And I looked everywhere. I even contacted people I knew who knew that area and we couldn't find anything that was enough to have a whole podcast episode. So I just couldn't find anything there. Now, then I went back to him a few weeks ago and I asked him for something else and he gave me two other choices. The first one was another part of the world, a very um, specific region. And again, I couldn't find anything substantive. It was kind of like someone fell off a mountain in this part of the world. So the other option that he gave me was to cover the cases of people from Liverpool, which is where he's from. So then I thought, oh, shit, how am I going to, like, know? because on my big spreadsheet that I have, I just have UK as someone where they're from, and then I have where they went missing. So I went through each individual person that I had as UK on my spreadsheet. I looked up where they were from on the internet. I then shortlisted people who were from the regions of Liverpool or surrounds, Merseyside. And then I went on missingpeople.org.uk, which is a big it's a big um, source for me that I use. They're really, really good. And if I worked in the UK, I'd volunteer for them. And they actually have a drop down for because the whole website is people who are missing in the UK. But they have a drop down where you can look for people missing overseas who are from the UK. And I thought, oh shit! So then I went through them, added any ones that I didn't already have on my spreadsheet to do at another time. And then I went through the ones that were, you know were missing overseas and looked where they were from in the world. So basically I ended up with three people who are basically from Liverpool and surrounds. None of them are from central Liverpool. Um, I It was really good for Jay to do that because that's a really interesting way to do it. So if you ever have a, you know, request if you're a patron for, you know, someone who's from a specific place, that's a really cool, interesting way to do it and it really challenged me. So one is from about an hour from Liverpool and two of these guys are from... Pretty much a few minutes from Liverpool, and I'm sure that Jay will know the areas. So, these guys would never have been a full episode, um, these three men. But I felt it was important not only because me and Jay both believe in covering people who, um, you know, don't get any attention, and I'm talking like none, um, but also because men don't get a lot of coverage. And I've always said that, um, you know. Women get a lot of coverage when they go missing, especially missing white women. That's why it's called Missing White Woman Syndrome. Um, but if it's a middle-aged man, just no one seems to care. And that's come up more and more for me doing this podcast. So I've got Gary Burns and Edward Cook, and then I've added on Kevin Ainley, and kudos to the Liverpool Echo and local newspapers, because they're the only ones that did any kind of coverage of this, and they're actually a really good publication. Liverpool is a city on the west coast of England, I guess you'd call it. Um, It's not too far from Manchester, which is the closest I've been to to Liverpool. And it's kind of, it's near North Wales, um, as Jay pointed out to me. You can cross over into Wales and go to, you know, where Snowdonia is and mountains like that. Um, I have not been to Liverpool. I was out with my friend Lauren who listens to this in York one night and we met a bunch of older women who were from Liverpool on a girl's night. They gave us our number and asked us to come stay with them after we left York. The next morning we woke up very drunk, could not find the phone number or the address, Um, lost it forever and never got to see those women again and I have no idea who they were. (laughs) Um, It is famous for the Beatles obviously Um, and It's part of the county because England is split into counties. It's part of Merseyside. So there's quite a lot of counties in England. I lived in Oxfordshire, which is a fair distance from Merseyside. Merseyside is also famous for the Jamie Bolger case, the abduction of little Jamie Bolger. He was abducted from a town about three miles from the centre of Liverpool. But we aren't going to Liverpool. We are going to three separate places entirely for this episode to cover the cases of three men who vanished literally off the face of the earth, and got next to no coverage. One has quite a lot more information in terms of who we think is responsible for their disappearance. Their families care, as per their quotes that I'll be reading to you, Um, and so do we. So let's get into, first off, Gary Burns' Missing in Turkey. So the sources that I used to tell Gary Byrne's story are The Liverpool Echo, The Chronicle Live, The Mirror and MissingPeople.org.uk, which is the one that I found him on. There is also a very small Turkish news channel on YouTube called TSC International News, and they made a three-parter little documentary with just pictures of Gary and his friends and his family with information about him on different slides. Those are available through Gary's um, family's Facebook page that they've set up to look for him. And honestly, most of the information about Gary comes from um, his family because (laughs) just no coverage, um, which is pretty standard when it comes to men, actually. Um, So Gary comes from Merseyside and he vanished in Turkey when he was 39 years old in the summer of 2016. Of these three men, he went missing the most recently. He went missing just over five years ago now. He was born on March 25th, 1978. And I've got a few pictures of him. He just looks like an English bloke who's into football. Um, He was five foot 11, tall, slim, had brown eyes um, with kind of brown Hair with a, he was going a bit grey, um, and he had a Merseyside accent. Now I think most of you probably know what a Scouser or Liverpool accent sounds like. I can't even begin to try to do it, um, but you can go look it up. It's very distinct. It's very unique. Um, and Liverpoolians are sometimes called Scousers, or they're called the accent is called Scouse, and. There was a really good show on when I was living in the UK that I used to love called Desperate Scouse Wives. So check that out. There's also, when you have a very thick eyebrow drawn on, that's called a scouse brow. Now, all of that information about his stats come from Gary's Missing Persons poster, which I will put on the website on the Patreon as well. So, His missing persons poster states that Gary had a tattoo on his arm but it doesn't say what it was or where on the arm it was and it says possibly one on his wedding finger. Um, It doesn't specify where they were but I don't think that is particularly weird because I don't think that my family would know where my tattoos are, you know, on my body. When you say Gary, does anyone else just hear Charlotte from Geordie Shore saying Gare? It's a totally different accent um, but that's all I hear. So Gary came from a town called Birkenhead which according that's according to the Liverpool Echo Birkenhead when I looked it up it's a town that sits on the River Mersey which is pretty much looks over to the city of Liverpool it's 20 minutes drive to the city of to the center of Liverpool right in the heart of the city and the train from Birkenhead to Liverpool Central takes about 6 minutes I found Gary on the missingpersons.org.uk website. And again, if you want to see more pictures of him than I have, um, go to the TSC YouTube. It's TSC International News, but his family's Facebook that they've put up to try to look for him and to put information out there, um, they've also posted it on their Facebook. Now, there is little out there about Gary in terms of his day-to-day life um, in the last few years of his life before he went missing, Um, but we do know that he was living in a resort town in Turkey at the time that he vanished, Um, and it only got a small amount of coverage in Liverpool, and I couldn't find any Turkish coverage at all. Now, Gary was working in a Turkish resort town that I looked up how to say on YouTube, a million videos, no one says the name of the place, it's just annoying music, you know, or just subtitles. Um, so I Googled it and it's kind of what I thought it would be. It's called Igmela. It's I C with that little accent that's kind of like a question mark off the C. M E L M E L E R. So this was around the time he vanished was August 12th, 2016. And so that means that we've just marked his fifth year missing. So Gary had a close family. His brother Terry is quoted who did a lot in the last five years to look for his brother as well as his sister Danielle. Um, and they had another brother, Owen, who is quoted in one of the articles. Now, his mum is Jill, and his stepmum, Dorothy, also was very close to him. And Dorothy was married to Bernard, his second wife, who is Gary's dad. His stepmum, Dorothy, um, told the Chronicle Live. Quote, Gary was so lovely. He was quiet and loved his football. He was always friendly and outgoing. Nobody ever had a bad word to say about him. Everyone said that he was a loving lad and he had always been like that. We were devastated when he told us that he was moving to Turkey, unquote. So Gary would be around 43 or 44 now, um, if he's still alive. And he was working in the resort of Icmela, Turkey, when he vanished, He had actually lived in Turkey for eight years as an expat. Um, A lot of the Brits, you know, tend to move to these places where it's nice and warm and sunny, and this is a really beautiful part of Turkey. He worked at a bar at the time he vanished, and he was a mad Liverpool football fan. And one of the main pictures that they've released, I believe it's the jersey for Liverpool that he's wearing. Now, looking up Ikmela, which I had never heard of, um, you can watch a lot of videos. It's a really beautiful, sunny beautiful backdrop to this beach resort area. Um, It's a small Turkish holiday resort on the Datka or Datsa peninsula of Turkey. So it's kind of almost in the southwest part of Turkey that almost looks over the Aegean Sea to Greece. It's in the Aegean portion of the country of Turkey, and I believe it's about 700 kilometers from the Syrian border. Turkey is both Europe and Asia, which we've talked about before. We've been to Turkey once on this podcast for the Sarai Sierra episode, way back towards the start of the podcast. Sarai was an American tourist who was murdered in Istanbul by a local vagrant. Now, Ikmela is near the other popular resort town of Marmaris, um, but it is smaller and kind of less popular, but you can walk up the beach and get to there. So it is surrounded on three sides by pine forests, which if you look at a picture of the landscape of this part, that's the backdrop um, of Ikmela Beach. And people come here to have a beach break, um, to drink at beach bars and eat good food in local restaurants and also to hike up into these pine forests because there's a lot of lookouts that give you a really beautiful view um, across the water. So it's also a beach getaway, as I said, and it has, you know, a pretty buzzing nightlife in the warmer months, in summer. There is a beach path that goes a very long way along this region, um, and it's just really beautiful. I'd never heard of it. Cappadocia, I think that's how you say it, is in Turkey, and I, I've always wanted to go there. It just looks like a fairy tale. It's such a unique place, um, and this is just another part that I just didn't know existed in Turkey. So Gary Burns moved to Turkey eight years before he vanished. So he would have moved there around 2008. He had met a woman who was Turkish while he was on holiday in Turkey and moved there. But then there's another source that says that he was already living there when he met her and decided to stay. But whatever the truth is, I have no word on if they're still together or if they split up because she's never quoted as looking for him. And I would think that she would be if she was looking for him. I don't know how long um, Gary had been in Ikmela. I think for a few years he had lived between Marmaris and Ikmela um, or, you know, in this part of Turkey. I also kind of get the feeling from how they speak that he was kind of like me and a lot of people when I lived overseas that Gary kind of just contacted home occasionally. You know, he's 39 years old and he's living his life and doesn't have to call home all the time. So if a bit of time passes without him getting in touch, it wouldn't worry them because he's a almost a middle-aged man. When Gary didn't make contact with his family by Christmas of 2016 from August, really when they last heard from him, they knew something was wrong. Now, they initially didn't report him missing because they thought maybe he left that beach part of Turkey for some work in the mountains where there would be more work over winter because like Greece and Croatia and all these places, work on in these beach parts or on islands are very seasonal. The information I have that says that when Gary was last heard from in the August of 2016, he was working at the resort's vodka bar. That's literally what it's called. And if you watch those TSC um, videos that are on YouTube, well, one part is on YouTube, but the rest are on the Find Gary Facebook page. One of his friends actually goes to all the main places and walks, you know, around and shows you these places. One source, I believe it was the Liverpool Echo, said that Gary had missed shifts in the lead up to when he was last seen. Most sources say he was last seen August 12th, but his family's Facebook say August 5th. And I don't know if that means when they last spoke to him or they've just got a different version of events from people. So, But surprise, surprise, when his family did contact Turkish authorities when they finally felt that something was wrong, nothing was done. And that's, you know, a pretty common thread on this podcast. But the Liverpool Echo, back, you know, where Gary is from, did some reporting leading up to about a year after he vanished and then there was nothing else. And, you know, if they're looking for content that's not COVID related or things that, you know, people are just, overhearing about. They should follow up on these stories. <laughs> like, I just I just don't understand it. So, Gary's brother, Terry, um, he said that from the time that they reported Gary missing, that they had nothing but setbacks when it came to dealing with authorities in Turkey. Again, I've done 111 episodes of this and, you know, probably... Over 50% are people who, no matter where they are in the world, the person goes missing. It's either a cultural setback, a language setback, or just an attitude setback. So Terry said that basically it left Gary's relatives to be doing the investigation work themselves in an area for the world that they're not familiar with. He told the Liverpool Echo in 2017, quote, We're learning all this as we're going along. We're going to pursue every avenue we can, but every time we get something, it feels like we take one step forward and three steps back. We just don't know where to turn to next. It looks like we're going to have to get the statements off the people who have come forward and take it to the police themselves. Ourselves, sorry. It's ended up that we've done all the investigating and the police in Turkey haven't really done anything to help, unquote, which is not surprising. Casting my mind back to when we went to Turkey for the Sarai Sierra episode, I don't remember there being major issues, but then again, Sarai was a woman who was foreign traveling on her own. She hadn't been living there for a while. Um, And I feel like police in a lot of parts of the world just don't really care when men go missing. So in May of 2017, his stepmom Dorothy, who was very close to him, told the Chronicle Live, quote, We have always been close as a family and this is just tearing us apart. It has been horrendous. We've been worrying what's happened. Even the slightest bit of information could help and take us forward to try to figure out what is going on. Please, Gary, get in touch with family just to let us know that you're okay. The whole family is worried and we just want to know you are all right. But between Christmas 2016 and August 2017, when you know, they were still investigating and finally being interviewed um, by local newspapers. The family was contacted through their Facebook by two separate witnesses who both said that Gary had been murdered in Turkey. One of them was a message that they received on Facebook that said, quote, Gary's dead, he's in the sea, unquote. And another one was asking for basically money to tell them what happened or a ransom. According to the Liverpool Echo, quote, a woman in the resort recently told Terry's sister, Danielle, 23, who works for a travel company in Turkey, that Gary was murdered because he owed money to a bar owner. She claimed that although he was working to pay back the cash, he was plied with alcohol before being bundled into a car and killed. He said, this girl said she was part of this group of people who killed Gary and she was willing to tell the Turkish police what happened. She said Gary owed a Turkish man money and couldn't pay him, so he was working and trying to get this money. We still don't know what it was for. She said on August 21st, he was in a bar, he was drunk, and they took him to a remote area and drowned him before burying him in hills near Ikmela. We knew something was wrong because it's been a year and he hasn't got in touch, unquote. Now, that's a very detailed, you know, um, (laughs) it's a very, very detailed confession it's got a lot of details. I believe that his family believes this Um, and the tips that they've had line up with that story. Um, again, despite this, the Turkish police did nothing. Um, you pretty much get a confession on a silver platter along with the woman's name who's willing to come forward and tell the story. She has a date. She has what happened. She has where his body is. They don't do anything. Now, looking up Ikmela, I saw a few people on TripAdvisor say they'd been mugged there, but all in all, it seems like a very safe place to go. Um, A lot of people go there yearly on their holidays and love it because it's very safe and it's very close-knit. Gary's family have since worked with British MPs to try to get, you know, some local attention on their side. They also set up a petition calling on Boris Johnson, who was then the Foreign Secretary. (laughs) It's amazing they'd put him in charge of being a Foreign Secretary. Um, to offer help to UK families of missing people abroad, which is something we have, you know, in common. But his brother Terry said that things, you know, were getting increasingly bad in terms of the fact that they had to investigate their brother's disappearance in a foreign country themselves. Terry said, quote, we were told two people were questioned over what happened to Gary, but it took 12 weeks before my sister got to speak to the prosecutor. She was told that there was nothing they could do because there's no evidence and they've been let go. They couldn't even tell her what had been said to them. It looks like we're going to have to get the statements off the people who have come forward and take that to the police themselves. So basically, in short, they did interview these people and they said that there's no evidence, even though they didn't look for a body or didn't follow the trail of evidence. I kind of, I feel like involved in this is some pretty heavy people in the local area who are tied in with the police. So his sister Danielle put up a Facebook page post. um, It's public. It's on hers. When you search on Gary Burns missing on Facebook, it comes up. She put this up in November 2020 with the names and faces of the people that from all of their investigations they believe were the ones who did it and from the people who came forward with um, confessions I'm not going to put that up on Patreon or anything like that. Um, it's there if you want to look at it, but I'm <clears throat> I'm not going to kind of get myself involved with that, regardless of if I believe it's true or not. Um, so there is a Facebook called Gary Burns Appeal Page on Facebook, and that's where, unfortunately, you get the majority of the most up-to-date information from his family because police are doing nothing. And I really couldn't find a whole lot about, you know, police back home in Merseyside doing a whole lot. There was a full website, it's gone now. You can't access it, so I'm not sure where it is. Anyone who has any information about the disappearance of Gary Burns from Liverpool, who vanished in Turkey, um, is advised to call the missing persons 24 hour free and confidential helpline from within the UK. It is 11600. Um, so you can also email confidential tips um, to info. 116000 at missingpeople.org.uk Gary's family also set up a petition a couple of years ago on change.org in relation to getting answers for British families whose family members are missing overseas and they did this in in collaboration with the Lucy Blackman Trust. Now, I haven't done Lucy's story yet. I've put it off and put it off because it's a big one. Um, It involves, you know, another death of an Australian woman as well. Lucy was a young British girl who went to work in Japan. You've probably heard of her and she was murdered by a serial killer in Japan. Um, The Lucy Blackman Trust is set up by her parents. I would love to speak to them, but first I have to do Lucy's case. The Lucy Blackman Trust is very much in line with what I try to do with this podcast, and I only found them through researching, you know, people missing overseas about a year ago. Um, They pretty much work alongside families of people who are missing overseas, because when I talk about Lucy's case, they had such a difficult time um, over there in Japan trying to find their daughter. So one day soon I will do Lucy's case because she's on my short list to do. Of course, if Gary Burns' family would love to come on the podcast and talk about him as much as I can do, um, I'm not a massive podcast and, you know, so it's up to them, but we have a wide listenership across the world in pretty much like every continent, most countries, um, even if it's a small amount of people and anything helps. So let's talk about the next case. Now, the next case is Edward Cook, who went missing in Spain. When you look up British people missing, um, especially on the missingpeople.org.uk website, and you look abroad, almost every second person from the UK, wherever they're from in the UK, is missing in Spain. Um, I don't know what it is about Spain. I don't know if it's because it's popular with tourists and, you know, that just happens to be where they are when something happens. I don't know if it's to do with people getting a bit rowdy on their holidays and something untoward happening. Um, I'm not entirely sure, but that was the thing that stood out to me. Spain, Spain is the big one. So one day I'll do a full episode with different people's stories just in Spain. So sources for Edward Cook's story that were out there were the Liverpool Echo, the Olive Press and missingpeople.org.uk. Their last tiny bit of press was in 2019. They've literally had two articles written about Ed's disappearance since it happened 10 years ago. So Edward Cook vanished in Spain in April 2011, so this year marked 10 years since he has been missing. His daughter, Lucia, who was just 10 years old when he vanished, she is now 21 and she's honestly been the most vocal person looking for him since it happened. Edward was 46 when he vanished, so he would be around 56 now. Lucille was 10 when this happened, as I said, and she's now 21. Um, And in 2019, in June, she made a last-ditch attempt for information on what happened to Edward to get his name out there because she was going to apply for a death certificate because he's been gone such a long time. There's very little out there about um, Edward's disappearance. And honestly, you can't narrow it down to a specific place in Spain because he lived in one space, but he was known to travel up and down that coast. So Edward came from a place in Merseyside, which I've also had to look up how to say. Um, it's, I think it's Hyton, H-U-Y-T-O-N. Blame the internet because that's how people break it down to say. Um, it is a 15 minute train ride from the heart of Liverpool. But the Olive Press states very weirdly um, that he had, quote unquote, connections to Dublin Island. And I think that probably means, because I've seen it before, I think it, it most likely just means, you know, he probably had family there as well. Edward, like Gary, was white. Um, He was five foot ten. He had a tanned complexion from living in a very sunny part of Spain. He had short brown hair, blue eyes, and what's referred to as a scouse accent. So, You know, a typical Liverpool accent which they're known for. So Ed had been living in a place called Benidorm in Spain for two years before he vanished. And before he moved to Spain, two years before, he worked as a builder in Merseyside. But then, like so many Brits, especially in Benidorm, um, he relocated to this part of the world um, because so many of them end up moving. I think Brexit has probably made that very difficult. Um, so Benidorm kind of makes me laugh because there used to be a comedy series that you may remember about a decade ago or 13 years ago called Benidorm. And it was a comedy that followed Brits on holiday in Benidorm because it's so well known for Brits, you know, Poms going on holidays there. It's kind of funny, like, because it's got such a reputation for that. Benidorm is in the province of Alicante, which is another popular city that, you know, people go to. It's not just popular with Brits. Germans, you know, go there for a trip, Dutch. Um, It's been a popular beachside tourist spot for around 100 years, and it's in the region of Valencia, which is another main city in Spain. It's located on the Costa Blanca um, because there's different ones. There's the Costa del Sol, the Costa Brava, Costa Blanca in the east coast of Spain, Benidorm over the summer is packed with people. It got a bad reputation in like the 80s and 90s because a lot of, you know, Brits went there and got pretty rowdy. It's now very family friendly. It has a really good, you know, dining scene, nightlife scene. It has three really big beaches and it's kind of like got a very unique skyline because you've got the beach and then there's massive skyscrapers, which is also weirdly what Benidorm is known for. According to the Liverpool Echo, another, you know, article from them because they did pretty good work, in 2012, Edward was due to fly back to Merseyside in the July of that year after he vanished in the April. He was living in Spain and his daughter, Lucia, who was 10 at the time, you know, was back in Merseyside with her mum. She had her communion in July of that year and Ed promised that he'd be there and he never appeared. He was last seen around April 24th, 2011, which pretty much would make his daughter the last one to see him, which I'll get into in a minute. He'd been staying, um, this is all they quote about where he was last seen, quote, he had been staying at Camping camping Villa Mar campsite in Benidorm and was also known to frequent Marbella on the Costa del Sol, unquote. So Marbella is a city which is about six hours or so down the coast from Benidorm, Almost towards Gibraltar, which is kind of on the south tip. So, Lucia had travelled from back in Liverpool across to Spain to spend her school holidays in that April with her dad. He dropped her off, you know, at the airport, and that was the last time that he was seen. And that was on the day that they quote that he was last seen. And I think sadly, it was probably his daughter that last saw him. She's done quite a lot of speaking about this and it's really heartbreaking because some of the quotes are from when she was 10 um, and she was being interviewed and she was so mature for her age to speak to a newspaper. He was due to turn 47 um, that year and when she was 10, Lucia said that every day he'd text her. She had a phone that he'd given her and he would text her on it and he would text her sweet dreams before she went to bed every night. And then after her visit for the school holidays, she he promised he'd see her in July for her communion and there was no contact after he dropped her off at Alicante Airport and that was on April 24th, 2011. She said that he kissed her goodbye um, at the airport. He promised to be back in Heighton for the communion day in July and that was the last time she ever saw or heard from him. When she was 10, she told the Liverpool Echo, quote, I was upset the last time I left Dad. But he said to me, don't cry, babe, I'm coming back for your communion soon. I'd had a really nice holiday. We'd been to an aqua park and we'd had really good fun together. He was always fun to be around and used to call me his princess. Before I left, he said he loved me and he'd see me soon. For him to just disappear isn't what he would do. I've missed him so much. I don't even like talking about Spain much or that holiday because it upsets me. And I had nightmares when we lost touch, unquote. And that was when she was 10. She said that. Um, she, at the time, she also said that she had a picture of him in her room. Um, and no matter where she went, if she was staying, um, if she was going on holiday or she was staying with relatives, she would take that picture everywhere with her. At the time, the Liverpool Echo reported that the Merseyside police had liaised with the Spanish police, I think probably in Benidorm, the last time he was seen and had sent out appeals, but that was it. Like nothing seemed to Happen, and there was no further information. I have a lot of questions which i 'll outline in a minute. so then I saw that there was an article from the Olive Press in two thousand and nineteen and lucia who 's now twenty one she this was her last ditch attempt to try to find him. She obviously had never forgotten him he 's her dad, um, and she was always trying to look for him, and she was giving it one last go before she was going to apply for a death certificate, which is something I guess you ultimately have to do. In 2019 at 21, she said, quote, it's such a hard thing to do, but after so many years, it's really difficult to believe he's alive somewhere. Anyone who knows my dad knows what a great father he is, and then he would never leave me at 10 years old. We just want some answers, unquote. And that is all there is. A tiny bit of press. I've read you all of it. 2012 and 2019. (laughs) And then you wonder why, I guess this is why I say so many people, get so much attention for disappearing. And some people just aren't worthy of a line in a paper. But these are the questions I have, because there has to be way more info that the cops either got, and if they didn't, that's that doesn't make any sense. It's been 10 years, they can probably release it. You know, immediate thoughts I had was, did he have a car? Where's that? Did he have a rental car? What happened with that? What was the last time he used his bank account? Were massive amounts of cash withdrawn? Did anybody at that camping ground that he was last seen with his daughter say anything? You know, there's a million questions. And if Lucia wants to come on this and she happens to hear it, you're more than welcome to, just like the rest of the families. That is all the information there is on Edward Cook. If you have information on the whereabouts of Edward Cook, please contact Missing Persons UK via their website, or you can text or call their number from within the UK, again, like Gary Burns, it's 116000. You can also email them tips confidentially and anonymously at 116000 at missingpeople.org.uk. And again, if Lucia hears this and wants to come on, update on what's going on, you know, we'd love to talk to her. The next story I have and the final one is Kevin Ainley. I added Kevin on even though he's from about 60 minutes drive from Liverpool because I wanted to add someone on who was from the area as a third person. And Kevin is another one missing in Spain. Sources for Kevin's part include the BBC, Lancashire Police and the Tenerife News. There's probably the most up-to-date information on this case and behind Gary Burns probably the most information from this episode. So Kevin went missing from the island of Tenerife, Spain. He was living and working there in June 2004 and the summer was about to kick off and it was going to be, you know, a massive one. Living on an island in Spain during summer, I think probably every second person is probably British. It has been a very long 17 years of zero answers for Kevin's family. And I think there's more than enough information about this case to start, you know, Asking questions of certain people. So, Kevin was from a place called Fleetwood. It's in the county of Lancashire, which is where Manchester is. Um, But I've put him on this episode as Fleetwood is 60 minutes' drive from the centre of Liverpool. At one point in his life, Kevin had also lived and worked in West Yorkshire um, in a place called Wakefield. So, he vanished when he was 24 years old. So, now if he were alive, he would be 41 or so. And probably the most vocal person in the two articles about Kevin is his sister, Gemma. So Kevin is described as being around five foot eight inches tall with dark brown hair. He had distinctive tattoos on his arms, his name, Kevin. He also had a little devil tattooed on his arm and a Native American woman as well. Kevin had been in Tenerife for about three months before he vanished. By this point, he had an apartment, a job and friends because the coverage of this refers to all three. Like any young British bloke, he made the choice to move to a Spanish island for a life, you know, working in a pub on the beach in the sun. He was living in the area of Playa de las Americas, and this is on the island of Tenerife. And he was working, like Gary Burns was, in a beach resort. According to the BBC, he was working handing out leaflets as a promotions job for a bar called The Sportsman in an area that is known as, quote unquote, The Patch. Now, June is the kickoff of summer, obviously, in Europe. And the islands of Spain, any islands really, any part of, you know, Europe – in the sun is kicking off, you know, with people. There is so much, you know, to do. People in bars, people in clubs. And a lot of people move to the islands, even if they're just from Spain, they'll move to the island. Because when I was in Greece, I met people, a lot of people from Athens who moved to the Greek islands, because they can make all of their money for the rest of the year, just in that summer, you know, from tips and things like that, because all the prices are hiked up and there's so many people. So I couldn't... I couldn't find the Sportsman Bar and I presume this is because, you know, it's been such a long time and these places change hands and change names all the time. But I was able to find what the patch was um, and they call the Playa de las Americas PDLA um, in the local area. And it's basically like an entertainment precinct that's really busy and, you know, it's got restaurants and English type bars as they refer to it. So actually, I think from what I could find, I actually think that what was the Sportsman's Bar is actually an Irish pub now, <laughs> which you can find everywhere. I went to an Irish pub in on Koh Samui, Thailand last time I was there. So Tenerife is one of the Canary Islands. It's extremely popular, you know, and people, as I said, move there to make a ton of money over summer. Now, June 13th, um, 2004 was the day that Kevin vanished. Um, And initially in the BBC from like 2012, there was kind of scarce information about what his movements were. But then in 2018, which I'll get into, the Lancashire Police made a final appeal for information on what happened to him when he vanished in Tenerife. Um, And there was more information in that. So bear with me. So June 13th, 2004, the day that Kevin Ainley vanished, was also a big day for football fans. France beat England in the UEFA European Championships. Lancashire Police and a lot of publications point this out, and they feel, and so do I, that this is an important thing for a number of reasons. First of all, it's football season, um, it's a big tournament. Also, the sporting bars would have been packed, including the one that he worked in, and, you know, he was pretty familiar with there. And also, as a lot of people know, people get very aggressive when their team wins or loses. Um, so also it would have brought a lot of people, you know, into the pubs to watch it and because this is very popular with the, you know, British tourists, you have to wonder if there were more Brits in the city centre at the time or in this player PDLA part. According to the BBC, on the day that he vanished, he had visited bars and clubs with a friend quote, at around noon, he and another friend went for a meal at a Chinese buffet restaurant called Merlin's. He was last seen walking in the direction of the sportsmen, and his passport and belongings were later found in his apartment, unquote. So whether or not that means that he made it back or he just didn't get around with his passport, which I get, like he probably didn't. Um, but he was last seen walking in the direction, according to the BBC, of the pub that he worked at. So in 2005, two officers from Lancashire travelled to Tenerife to help local police in the search, um, even though it had been a year for Kevin Ainley, but they were unable to figure out exactly what happened. So his sister said at the time, quote, we are convinced there must be someone out there who saw or heard something. I just hope that if someone does know something, they can find it in their hearts to come forward and help us out of this misery, unquote. So then flash forward to 2018, and for one reason or another, which I can't really figure out, they decided after 14 years to come forward with a better timeline of what happened. Now, this must have been put together in 20, 2005 when the liaison officer went over there, so I just can't figure out what, why it took this long. So they made an appeal with new information plus a better timeline. They also specified, quote, we are particularly keen to speak to anyone who may have witnessed an altercation between Kevin and some door staff at the Cafe Del More in the early hours of June 13th. Unquote. Now, this is actually June 13th before I've I've already gone through what he did that day. He went out with his mate, things like that. It's actually like, you know, 12 or more hours before that, but they specifically Note that it's almost like they're saying that those people then later on did something to Kevin. So I'll take you through the timeline that Lancashire Police put out. So around six a.m. on June thirteenth, two thousand and four, it is believed that Kevin is involved in an altercation with an unknown number of door staff at the Cafe del Moore. Kevin leaves the venue in the direction of the Altamar Apartments where he is staying. Um. So he must have been up out with his mates the night before because he's out at 6am and he's having fights, you know, or an altercation with an unknown number of door staff. And we all know how bouncers can be. They're like cops that didn't make it. So Kevin then leaves that venue and goes home. But this is the specific thing that the police have pointed out that they want to know if anyone saw that. And you're asking people to now go back 17 years. So June 13th, 2004... Um, so he wakes up that day after this altercation, goes home, he wakes up. Kevin and his flatmate visit Merlin's Chinese Buffet in the area of the resort known as The Patch, which I've already talked about. He leaves the restaurant on his own in the direction of the Sportsman Bar, where he was working as a promoter. At this time, he's believed to be wearing a blue, I don't know how to say it, but the brand's still around. It's like lesse or Aless. You can buy it still um I don't know if he was going there to work that day um or if he was just going there because he's familiar with the place and wanted to visit friends um but that was the last time he was seen when he was leaving in the direction of the sportsman's bar mid-afternoon on Sunday so if he was due to work I wonder if they know that and he just didn't turn up or if he was just going there to have a drink where he worked So that brings us to the next day, Monday the 14th of June 2004. This is when Kevin's dad gets a phone call from one of Kevin's friends saying that he has not been seen since the 13th. And on Monday the 21st of June 2004, his mum reported him missing to the police after he'd been missing a week because I don't judge these people. They've got young sons who were probably not contacting home that much out having fun. Police Officer Gary Fishwick of Lancashire Police stated in 2018 during this appeal, quote, June 13th, the day of Kevin's last sighting, was the same day that France beat England 2-1 with an injury time penalty in the UEFA European Championships. A popular British tourist destination, like Playa de Las Americas, would have been a hive of activity, especially around the area of the patch, which is known for its bars and restaurants. I'm asking holidaymakers and expats to cast their minds back to that day and think that if they saw anyone matching Kevin's description in the hours leading up to his disappearance. We're also keen for information about the events leading up to Kevin's last sighting. We believe Kevin was involved in an altercation with some men at the Café Del Morte where he had been drinking with a friend. We haven't been able to trace the men involved and it would appeal to them and also anyone who saw the altercation to speak to us as they could hold vital information. And again, unquote, that was, you know, a good 18 hours before he was last seen, that altercation. But I think they're using the football championship as like an anchor because a lot of people remember something like that. It will, You remember something happening at the time you were somewhere and then it could cast your mind back. So I think he's probably being you know, pretty intelligent with that. Anyone with information on the disappearance of Kevin Ainley in Tenerife in 2004 is asked to contact police on 101 and to quote reference number LC-2018-0706-0371. Alternatively, you can contact Crimestoppers in the UK anonymously on 0800 555 111. So in the space of what I would normally tell a story about one person, I've told the stories of three people. And that kind of goes to show how little, um, press I think men get when they go missing. That has been a common thing, um, you know, across the last 16 months or whatever of doing this podcast, just very little information about specific men going missing, but tons about women. So I really wanted to, you know, focus on that. Thank you for requesting people from Liverpool, Jay. Um, I hope this in some way helps get the word out there. I have quite a quite a lot of listeners in Spain. I don't know about Turkey, so um, you know, maybe you can share this when I put the episode page up. So I will put that on unknownpassagepodcast.com. I'll put up an episode page for all three, you know, together for episode 111. so you can share that. Um his families can email me on unknownpassagepodcast at gmail.com or through the website at unknownpassagepodcast.com if they want to come on or you know, any, add any further information or anything like that. Become a patron. It links off the website, but also on the Patreon app or patreon.com. Just search for unknownpassagepodcast.com. You can give as little or as much as you want a month and it really helps at the moment um, with how things are going, both in my life, health-wise, but also lockdowns, which also impact my life because I live in Melbourne. Um, un- one-off donations to the podcast through PayPal at Sorry, I, so many things to remember. I'm like on oh, the phone. Um, so it's PayPal, and the email is unknownpassagepodcast.com. Leave a rating or review if you like the show. Um, I don't generally take case suggestions anymore, unless you're like a long-time listener, because I prefer to give that option to patrons, um, which is kind of what I'm doing at the moment, and that's steering the ship of this podcast. So if you become a patron, you get to choose a location. You can also choose a specific case as long as it. I can't even explain to you how many people contact me through especially YouTube. You can tell they've never listened to the podcast or email because they're just looking for coverage of a particular case and you can always tell that they're not related to the person but they just want to hear about this case and then you never hear from them again because you write back, oh, I cover, it doesn't match, you know, the description of my podcast is about people who disappear while they're travelling abroad and then they never, <laughs> yeah, I, I had one recently who asked if I could cover this well-known case of, it's actually a case I've followed forever, like a Melbourne girl who vanished in Melbourne, um, you know, forever ago. And I wrote back a really nice email, you know, no, sorry, because she didn't go missing when she was traveling abroad. And that's the podcast. You can kind of tell that they haven't listened to it. They just want their case covered. um, And they just never wrote back. So, yeah. <laughs> Um. So yeah, Um. again, I am going to be pretty strict with how I'm going to have my schedule, stuff like that. Um, I really, I love doing the podcast and when I get my thyroid out, I want to do every few weeks, one or two episodes a week. Um, When my thyroid's out and I feel way better, there's one week where I'm going to do every single day a new episode for you guys. Um, But it's just too much for my throat at the moment um, and just how I feel and just really dizzy, lightheaded. I almost passed out just going to the shop the other day. I almost was crawling on my knees. Um, It's just bad. I, I can't believe how much I've gone downhill since I was diagnosed in May and they reckon I've had it since I was growing up. Um, and I must've had episodes before, which is really makes me think cause I have had funny little kind of things in my life. Um, so yeah, I will keep you posted when that's going to come out. I am on a list, but in Melbourne there's restrictions on what surgeries they can do. So she said it's grade A, which is like cancer patients having them removed and then, um, high level, level twos, which are, you know, things like me, <laughs> um, so, hopefully that's soon, yeah, I will get back to you when I get back to you um it please don't like email repeatedly if I don't reply immediately um because I don't like i don't know how to put it that's stressful. There's specific people like on my Instagram and things, not for the podcast who do that um who I don't really know very well, but they do the same job as I do, so they think they know me. And it's like these obsessive, where are you? And it's like, I don't know you. And you live in, you live in like the States. It's fucking annoying. Um, So yeah, just, I'm trying to tell everyone in my life. I know I'm rambling, but (sighs) recently someone couldn't get a hold of me. And I was asleep because it was 10 p.m. until 2 a.m. And that's pretty normal. And they, they, I woke up at two to go to the toilet in the morning and I saw them. And it was, if you don't get back to me, I'll call the police because I think you're dead because, and I'm like, this stuff really, that really annoys me. (laughs) Um, And I went mental at this person because that's not a normal thing to do. Um, And I know that people care and stuff, but I'm very much like an independent person. And that stuff really like, (laughs) I don't know what to say to it. Um, So yeah, I hope that you guys are well. We had a really sunny day here in Melbourne. Now I'm friggin' I'm Rob Gell with the, with the weather here, yeah, Jane Bunn with the weather. Um, it's coming into summer in Australia, which is like, it's why I want this fucking thyroid out because I've been like a sweaty, really bad, like I'm talking like I drip onto counters at shops. Um, this is why I want this thyroid out because that's been causing me grief like for like years now and I, I want to enjoy summer without having an ice bath like three times a day. Um <laughs> so buy me a ticket to Alaska please. I'd live I'd live in the back blocks of fucking nowhere in Alaska. I really would. Um just to escape the heat in Australia. So yeah. I will talk to you guys soon and um thank you again for every patron, every really nice email and stuff that I get. Um and yeah, people who are funny and make me laugh on Telegram or on Patreon. Oh, join the Telegram channel you have to have an invite. So you need to, you need to ask me for it. And that would be through email or through Patreon. I only allow specific non-patrons in there. Nate is one of them um, because they're long-term listeners, um, who have contributed like one-off amounts or things like that. So yeah, just ask for that. And you can join our little group where we talk about different cases and, um, share different weird news articles and, um, I, the, the last thing I was going to say is I've joined um, just for something productive to do that challenges my brain because I, I feel like being in Melbourne with the way it has gone, on top of everything, my brain feels a bit funny um, and a bit flatlined. And so I downloaded and signed up for three months of the app Babbel, which you can learn a language, and I've always wanted to learn um, German. I did Italian in primary school, and then I did French all the way through high school, and French is the one I'm the best at, but I've always thought German sounded pretty badass. So I thought it'd be easy because it's a English is a Germanic language, but turns out it's not easy. It's not easy at all, um, and there's no rhyme or reason why words are male or female, which I found out from fluent German speakers, you just have to know it. And there's no way to know it. And I don't understand. (laughs) Um, So yeah, thank you to Fintan and Sophie for sending me info on, you know, German language and things like that. And I will continue to persevere. And maybe one day I will re-record the episodes that take place in Germany, like Louise Curtin. I will re-record them in German for you. Wouldn't that be amazing? Cool. So I will talk to you soon. Bye.